Many of us today are experiencing a feeling of exile. More frequently, we hear or say, I miss the way things were, a phrase commonly spoken about changes that are, at first, experienced as unwelcome, like a relationship ending, losing a job, or losing a place of privilege. But sometimes, it is in the midst of seasons of displacement that the greatest growth occurs and the greatest blessings are found. The exile of the Bible was a time of massive displacement when Israel was forced to leave behind many of its norms. And yet, it was during this season of loss that the Jewish faith underwent its most powerful and transformative spiritual growth. This Lent, by exploring the spiritual awakening of exile, we pastors hope to focus on areas needing attention in the church and country today. Join us as we go deeper into the search of faith to discover what can be found precisely when we think so much has been lost. Let us pray. Most gracious God, we ask that we do today what Jesus did in Nazareth, center ourselves on your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You are about to hear a reflection given by the prophet Micah, who lived before the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon, and then a reflection given by Jesus, who lived eight centuries later. By Jesus' time, the temple has been rebuilt, and there is a new king of Israel. Well, sort of. He is a political appointee by Rome. Needless to say, there has been massive change between when Micah lived and when Jesus lived. And worship has changed too. In Micah's day, worship is temple-oriented. In Jesus' day, it is temple-based for some and synagogue-based for others. But though worship has changed dramatically, Micah and Jesus say something similar in their reflections. Let's begin with Micah. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly before your God. Now hear from Jesus, speaking in worship in his hometown of Nazareth. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The word of the Lord. 
In museums, you will find fixed displays, paintings on walls, artifacts on pedestals or in display cases, and statues in open spaces. In a transportation museum, you'll find fixed displays as well. But what is odd is that these fixed objects are portable devices. I mean, transportation is about moving, right? A car rides the road, a train rides the rails, a plane flies overhead, and a rocket blasts into space. Now, sure, one can imagine what it's like to ride that powder blue 1959 Cadillac Eldorado with the top down, or, if you're my age, to see a red, classic Schwinn Stingray bicycle and remember you're riding your neighborhood with one. But a transportation museum really needs more than fixed displays, doesn't it? Something needs to move. And that's why I think it's great that our transportation museum makes it possible for the 611, the most modern steam locomotive ever built, to pull vintage passenger cars so folks can experience a transportation exhibit by transporting. And it's fitting that our bus museum offers its vintage buses for public use so that, for instance, members of this church on Picnic Sunday can ride from our parking lot out to Braylock in 1950s style. The kind of questions that the creators of our transportation museums had to answer about portable objects was a question that needed to be answered centuries ago. When Hebrew nomads quit being nomads, when those Hebrews quit wandering and they settled down as a nation, they had to answer the question, what is to be done with the Ark of the Covenant? Built for travel, the Ark is a highly decorated chest carried by two poles, and it went everywhere the Hebrews went when they wandered without a home. The Ark centered their lives. It centered their worship for it reminded them that while they might not have a place to call home, God finds a home with them. And the ark also reminded them of what God expected of them, the kind of people that they were called to be. For inside that chest were the two tablets on which were etched the commandments. Keep the Sabbath. Honor your elders. Don't lie or murder. Don't steal another's possessions or another's spouse. The ark made clear that there is to be a connection between worship and justice, between prayer and practice, between love of God and love of others. But when the nation is established with a king to rule it, with borders to defend, with people living in houses and not tents, what's to be done with this portable ark? King Solomon comes up with a solution. Build a transportation museum. Replace the tent that protected the ark with a stone tent and place in the very center of that stone tent the ark. Only don't let it be on public display. Make the ark only accessible to priests to invest them with power and authority and let the message be clear. God, who went everywhere with God's people, is now going nowhere. Here, God's people 
God's nation, God's king. The problem, though, is that an ark out of sight can go out of mind. Over the course of Israel's history and its kings, God's presence became more and more assumed, while God's demands for justice sometimes became neglected. What about the expectation of those tablets to honor God by loving neighbor? But it turns out that even when the ark can be hidden out of sight, the commandments could not be kept out of sound. The prophets became oracles through whom the justice commands of God find voice. And a classic example of the commandments finding voice is the passage that I read from Micah, a passage often used in the way that we used it earlier today as a call to worship. Speaking to the king and speaking to all those who have resources and power, Micah reminds them that protecting the tablets cannot replace their keeping. Worshiping the God who gave the tablets cannot replace serving God. God is rightly worshiped by people who show justice and love kindness. In the eight centuries between Micah and Jesus, worship changes dramatically. Our passage from Luke points to that dramatic change. What I read from Luke is the first time that Jesus preaches. And look where it happens. The first time that Jesus preaches, called the king of his, the new king, the first time that he preaches isn't in the big city. It's not in Jerusalem. It's not at the temple. It is where he grew up. And it's offered in a synagogue. Synagogue worship is exile worship. By that, I do not mean that there are no synagogues in Israel. There are plenty of them. I mean, Jesus is standing in one of them after all. But what I mean is that synagogue worship either began or took off after Israel fell to Babylon and the temple was destroyed. Believe it or not, exile worship has a lot to do with how we worship today as Presbyterians. To explain what I mean, I want to take you on an imaginary tour in a worship museum. Now, that's a crazy idea, I know, because a worship museum would have to be impossibly large in order to show off something as large as a cathedral and something as small as a sweat lodge or a throw rug beside a bed. But please, just play along. I'm your guide, and I take you into a display room that contains a typical synagogue of Jesus' day. Now, a synagogue could be a house, and it could be large or small, but this particular synagogue is vintage. It's just like the one excavated in Nazareth. It's just like a lot of synagogues that have been excavated in small towns of Israel. And so I'm going to tell you about it. I begin my spiel with some context and tell you that when the first temple was destroyed and Jews had to figure out how to worship where they were, whether they're in the ruined city of Jerusalem or in some ghetto communities in Babylon, they had to do it entirely differently. They gathered in homes first, and then they started meeting in buildings like this one. They had to do among themselves what used to be done far away by priests in the temple. 
They began to look around at those among them who could lead them, those who showed the commitment to study and wisdom to understand the books that were then being gathered, edited, and distributed to remind the Jews of their story and their identity no matter where they lived. And over time, they began to look to Pharisees who were lay scholars and rabbis whose wisdom invited followers. Their worship did not involve the catharsis of slaughtering animals to pay some kind of price for sin, nor did it get lost in rituals. The worship focused on scrolls that contained those writings. These scrolls had the books that were the Torah, prophets, and writings, and were the beginnings of what we Christians call the Old Testament. And then I'll then go on to tell you that this worship was local and centered on the sacred text and was the most vital worship the Hebrew people had ever known. I'll then give three examples why. And being a guide, I'll be secretly pleased by those of you taking notes. First, I'll say, the exiles learned again what their slave ancestors learned, that even when you are nobody in the eyes of the world, you are beloved children of God. And second, They learned again the lessons of those ancestors who had escaped from Egypt, those nomads who pitched their tents in different places because they did not have a land to call their own. They learned that even if they now live as deportees in Babylon, which is now Iraq, and later even if they do live in far-flung cities and towns of the Roman Empire, wherever they are, God is with them and can be worshipped where they live. And third and finally, they learned one more shocking thing. I'll tell them that as someone who grew up in the church, I had a Raiders of the Lost Ark kind of view about the Ark, that it contained magical powers and could not be destroyed. But it probably was destroyed along with that first temple. And the exiles learned that they could worship even without that Ark. And even without the Ten Commandments carried inside it. Because even with the physical tablets lost, the exiles found that the commandments could be kept anyway. The commandments are served when the people serve justice and love kindness. And among the exiles who had experienced injustice and who had experienced cruelty, justice and compassion became a hope for them. It became a hope for the future. It became a hope that that this new people, this new community, this new kingdom of God, this realm would develop where the poor would be remembered, where maybe the oppressed are set free, where the blind can see again. And from that day to this, there arose a hope for the future that was in tension with the hope of a return to Israel. Sure, some exiles longed for the day when they could return to the homeland, but the extraordinary spiritual discovery in exile was actually the rediscovery of what Micah was talking about. God's kingdom comes. God's kingdom is present whenever and wherever we are humble before God in worship, doing justice and showing kindness wherever we are. God was never just in Israel. God is in the world. And to find God in the world 
Just look for where justice and kindness are happening. Now, as a guide, I know that some people are anxious to move on to the next exhibit that everyone is talking about, the recreation of a cave of a mountainside monastery. They get to walk inside it. So I'll just wrap things up here by saying this. I'll say, imagine the synagogue being the one in Nazareth where Jesus gives his first sermon. He speaks to people who hear sometimes that they need to make a pilgrimage. Go see that new temple that is built by Rome's appointee, Herod the Great. But Jesus says, you know what? What you are looking for is right here, right now. The Spirit of the Lord that moved with the ark is present in me here in this town of Nazareth, so far removed from Jerusalem. And you know why? Because through me, the good news is being brought to the poor and released to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed. I'll stop being a tour guide now. I wasn't paid enough anyway. Today, I stand before you as a pastor asking you to consider who you are as a people gathered in person or virtually to worship at Second Presbyterian Church. Today is the Sunday when we consider the nature of the life and witness of this community of faith. You have available to you the annual report, which gives a broad view. Please, if you haven't looked at it, look at it, especially if you're a visitor. It tells all kinds of stuff about who we are as a church. And then later on in just a little bit at our annual meeting, you'll hear about the church's finances and staff. But I want to close my sermon by telling you about worship. We have (laughs) beautiful church facilities, a beautiful sanctuary. I'm glad we do because we can house worship and we can house the activities of a very active community of faith. I'm also glad that in the span of time that all of us have worshipped here, there has not been any debt, that any construction or renovation has been paid for outside pledge giving, that we have a maintenance fund that helps your giving go more to programs and missions. But all that said, our facilities were lost to us for a while. We entered into a kind of exile where many of us, and for a while all of us, worshipped in homes, or maybe on walks or in cars. Worship changed. I mean, when we had communion, you had to come up with your own bread or drink. Don't tell me what you use for communion. I don't want to know. When we had an ordination, elders raised their hand where they were instead of placing their hand on the heads and shoulders of those being ordained. When we bowed our heads to pray, it was because someone on a screen called us to do so. We had memorial services where no one came and where the attendance was large. Then this past year, when we opened up our buildings again, some sat in the pews and some sat before their screens. Worship changed, but we found ways to keep the justice and compassion commands of the tablet still, didn't we? We increased support for efforts to help those in crisis. We kept addressing important issues like racism, and we found new ways to tend to the sick and the dying and the grieving. We even conducted this enormous financial campaign where all of it went to efforts to answer Micah's call. 
I think it's no secret how much I love this church and am proud of it. I know, though, that as individuals and that we as a congregation, we can do better. I know that. We can do better to live in the vision that Micah and Jesus shared of God's realm being made known in the world around us. I know that. Honestly, though, my intent right now is not to sound like that parent whose child can do no wrong. Rather, my intent is to raise up something that we remembered by living through it. Being a body of Christ cannot be about buildings without ministry, rituals without meaning, and it can never be worship without love. So no matter the circumstances, and no matter whether we are together or apart, true worship means finding ways to remain open to the Spirit of the Lord being upon us, and responding with the worship of our hearts and the commandment-keeping of our lives. True worship doesn't mean leaving it to the professionals, the religious professionals, but finding each other where we are so that together we can do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with our God. Second Presbyterian Finding Direction by Following Jesus.